cliffcentral.com. Sanman and Nonke, welcome to the show. Today I share the mic uh, with a man who has cufflinks that are more expensive than my yearly salary. That's not saying much for his cufflinks, more it's the state of my salary. <laughs> and uh, his name is Colin Coleman and he's the managing director of Goldman Sachs South Africa. Of course, we've been doing this series called Frankly Speaking, Is There a Way to Change Major South African Economic Challenges? We've been speaking to unions, we've been speaking to entrepreneurs, we've been speaking to education and now it's the turn of big business. And uh, who better to speak to than Colin Coleman? He's been uh, an industry leader for a long, long time, um, someone who's done exceptionally well for himself, but also exceptionally well for the country in terms of leading the way in big business. You've done some amazing things, and we'll get to some of those those initiatives as well. Um, Colin, thank you for joining me today, and welcome to the show. Absolute pleasure. If you, uh, if you want to ask Colin some questions, we have uh, on Facebook and Twitter been asking uh, the whole weekend and some interesting questions have come through. I'll get to some of those as well, mm-hmm. but you can hit us up at yebo underscore L-E-V-Y or you can uh, hit WeChat uh, Cliff Central and ask your questions to Colin Coleman. Colin, on the show, we always like to tell our listeners where we sit. We're very biased. It's not your normal uh, radio interviews. We're very frank. I've got to say that um, I feel coming into this uh, show a bit like a socialist on uh, Donald Trump rant in the 80s. But really, my feeling is big business has let South Africa down in a way uh, and in many ways aided and abetted in the catastrophe that we call SA today. And I suppose that's where we start. And I want you to help me to potentially change my opinion on this. I'm not naive enough to think that, of course, we don't need big business and that big business hasn't played a huge role. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we are as a country today, where big business is leading the way and where it's, where it's failed. You know, let's, let's be honest about that as well. Um, so let's start with the state of South Africa. You're a huge, uh, I would say patriot. I've heard some of your interviews over the past while. You know, you're, you're, you've been a, an instrument not only in democratic South Africa, but fighting the apartheid government as well. Your whole family has. Tell me what you think the state of South Africa is right now. Okay, well, let me just start off by saying, obviously, South Africa is in a suboptimal place, but your opening suggested that business uh, has been wanting. Mm. I would say the reality is that all sectors, government, business, labor, civil society, all South Africans mm-hmm. uh, are part of are part of this journey. And at times, different sectors have been stronger or weaker, mm. have behaved better or not so well. Mm. Uh, and we're all in it together. So, you know, the blame game fingers, doesn't right? really work. It's mm. a question of how do we all rise from this point. Uh, I would say when I say we're at a suboptimal point, clearly uh, the uh, last 10 years under President Zuma, Mm. Uh, you know, one can, one can see, particularly in the last five, five years, an economic decline, which has infected the welfare of all South Africans, particularly the poor. Uh, there have been some areas in which we've outperformed and some areas where we've massively underperformed. Mm. Uh, and the underperformance areas are dominating, uh, at the moment. And obviously the issues around corruption, around Gupta Gate, around issues relating to state capture uh, have become almost all-encompassing at this point because Mm. we're unable to move forward without defeating state capture, by which I mean so much of the South African economy is dependent on fair regulation uh, or fair licensing or good economic policy uh, or state-owned enterprises, systemic like ESCOM or Transnet, which Mm. provide... Uh, you know, monopoly providers of 
uh, either electricity or transport services to the economy, without which the economy can't operate normally. So unless we fix these uh, entities and then in turn fix the issues which are preventing proper policy, uh, actually business finds itself in almost an impossible position. And the people who suffer are the employed, who become unemployed, or the unemployed looking for work, which are, you know, 9 million people Mm -hmm. uh, in South Africa, 16 million employed. This is extraordinary in numbers. And obviously the racial skewing of the unemployed means that the majority of people experiencing these problems are African uh, youth uh, and African people, particularly in the rural and the peri-urban areas who have really no hope at this point. We have this sort of classic duality post-apartheid of a two-speed economy, one that's been doing quite well in the post-apartheid period but has been suffering of late. And the second sort of duality has been those that have been marginalized and excluded right through this period. And haven't, we haven't really managed structurally in the economy to open uh, the economy to those people. And those are the people who are young, women, uh, black South Africans who really have no hope. Let's talk about that a little bit. You, you've, you've, you speak about this a lot, the tale of two countries, you know, the peri-urban and the rising black middle class, 10 million strong things seem to be going on the app. Why haven't we created access for those peri-urban young black people with, with, um, with the resources that we have in this country? I think right now, you know, the, uh, the, the, and I mean, let me just also state that mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not expecting you to have the perfect answer, just more your mm-hmm. opinion. I mean, I think yeah. that's what the show is all about. One of the, one of the secrets of my, or the lesser known, uh, parts of my CV is that I actually studied architecture mm-hmm. and I bumped into Lindiwe Sisulu, who's the minister of housing. Yes, and yeah. I was talking to her about this problem. And there's a, you know, a very significant, uh, realization at the moment that the structural physical realities of apartheid have to be broken in other words people you know who in the uh, bantustans were put far away from economic opportunity mm. people growing up in large scale uh, semi urban settlements like winterfeld a million people outside pretoria people outside uh, if you, if you go out Johannesburg, you go to Casalinga on the way, you see, uh, where I used to go to school, uh, in the, in the late 1970s, absolute barren land. Now, mm. uh, you know, squatter settlements there, uh, but people moving in closer to the cities. But the reality is there's no real opportunity and there's no unification physically of the urban complexes. So we absolutely have to, in my view, in order to really deal with this question of this two-speed society. We're going to have to bring much more developmental projects that are going to have to be government-supported projects into the city. So we're going to have to change the dynamics in the city and open up much more opportunity. It's actually quite a, an interesting opportunity in and of itself because economically that will create a lot of activity. Mm. It will also start to unify the cities in a much more fundamental way. And if you look at, you know, I'm sort of borrowing on China. If you look at the, the Chinese experiments, obviously human rights issues were involved there. Uh, but they were very decisive in, you know, breaking down barriers in cities, but at the same time creating new cities, mm. uh, and, and created huge infrastructure projects associated with 
you know, hundreds of new cities in China. We comparatively have done very little to nothing to change the apartheid spatial dynamic in mm. South Africa. Do you think that that's, there's a reason for that in, in, in this way, that the rich have effectively checked out of South Africa, of, of all the systems? You know, uh, we saw a you know, huge a, model of Finland where yeah. they – where they actually disallow any kind of private school education because they want the rich to be involved so that they know that the rich and poor are getting the same kind of education. Of course, we know the rich has a powerful hand because of wealth and that they can actually do something. So if they're out of the schooling system, if they're out of the healthcare system, if they're out, I mean, I'm just interested. I'm not saying that there's a choice. If, if you're rich, you want the best for your, your children and yourself in terms of healthcare and education. But do you think that that might be an issue that they've actually created this two-state society because they've effectively gone, well, government's not providing, so we need to provide for ourselves? When you say left the society, you mean left and gone overseas or you mean left and created its own pockets of excellence? Exactly. Yeah, you left mean the, you mean the latter. Because exactly, let yeah. me just say on – the people that think that the rich have left South Africa, they have not. No, no, no. I don't uh, mean I, I know. I'm just yeah, clarifying yeah. because uh, you asked that question in a way that was ambiguous. Okay. But it's actually one of the, the greatest fables about South Africa. Uh, do you know who's benefited the most in the post-apartheid dividend is the wealthy. Mm. The wealthy and white South Africans have created huge, wealth. huge wealth and opportunity out of the post-apartheid period. Mm-hmm. And and this is one of the sort of issues I think for black South Africans is they've seen white South Africans do well, notwithstanding the BEE and empowerment issues. And there's been a subset of African black South Africans who've done, you know, well. Uh, and those are the 10, 10 million black middle class. And there's been a lot of people that, as I say, have been excluded, uh, you know, this 9 million looking for work, unable to find it, really. Mm. They are, you know, sort of the marginalized in society. But, you know, the, they've been pockets. So the you know, the, the dynamics we, we face in South Africa is one where there's, a, there's a, a very big group that's been excluded. There's some people that have come in due to economic pressures, have been forced back out. Mm-hmm. And then there have been people in the society who actually do very well, live very well, have got wealthier, uh, and so that's, that's important. I would say for those inside the mainstream of South Africa, both black and white, uh, the reality is that those people are using private sector education, health, and other services, refuse and other mm. uh, services, bypassing the municipalities, bypassing public school systems, bypassing education. I think it's a fallacy to uh, blame people for that. I think the the reality when you look at the statistics is that South Africa is spending huge amounts on public education and huge amounts of public health well in line with other emerging markets, but mm-hmm. the outputs are failing. Because of tax you're talking about, be- being taxed? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm just saying the, the, the amounts that with the fiscus is mm. investing in mm. education and health, public education and health, is absolutely in line. We are not failing on the amount we're investing. We're failing on – the output from that investment, the quality of the schools, the quality mm. of the hospitals, the quality of the healthcare. And, you know, the statistics tell you that 80% of the education budget is uh, salaried, either in administrative or um, public school uh, teaching posts or, or other forms of administration. In the healthcare world, it's about 50%. Uh, so there's there's a significant amount of the budget that's being spent that's, as again, is a very significant spending uh, that comes down to people that we're employing. 
Are those people up to the job? Are they, you know, is performance management being uh, administered properly in the public sector? Why are those teachers, mm. the school principals, the administrators, the bureaucrats is not doing their job by uh, the benchmark of outputs that we see on, you know, how much uh, people are failing matric or uh, the pass rate in maths and science, which mm. is very poor. Uh, and we have to fix those structural problems. That's got to do with managing the society. You know, are the trade unions in those uh, in those education and health departments facilitating uh, proper performance or blocking proper performance? Or is the government managing to weed out people who shouldn't be in the system and replacing it with highly capable people? You know, Otherwise, we're damning a generation mm. um, because we're not getting the right teachers and the school principals and so on into place. And this is obviously controversial and difficult, but you know, we shouldn't blame Netcare, MediClinic, uh, life healthcare for producing good hospitals at a price. Mm. You know, that's not the problem. The problem is when you go to the public hospitals in Hillbrow or uh, Johannesburg or other places in the country, they're underperforming. I'm interested, Colin, because I think you, um, you, you're, you're a very smart man, probably one of the smartest men we've, we've uh, hosted on this show. I would love and, and imagine a scenario where you sent your child to a public school. I'm assuming that you don't, but maybe that assumption is incorrect as well. So I must, I must caution myself. Mm. But if you, if your child was at a public school, you would be the one putting pressure on that principal to make sure that those standards are, are, are high and that your, you know, your expectations of what your, your son or daughter is learning at school was absolutely high. So, you know, if you, if you had an accident, you fell off your bike, or whatever the case may be, mm. and you had to go to, um, Johannesburg Jen, you would be the one going, this is unacceptable. And yeah. you've got the, you've got the, uh, a lever in terms of power to, to change that. So, it's not to say that the discoveries of this world and the net cares of this world are doing bad things, but it is, there's a conundrum there, isn't there? Where, where we're placed in a situation where we're saying we want the best for ourselves and our children, but at the same time, it's very quick to blame people when we don't have the skin in the game. It's a, it's a fundamental point. I, mm. I can only agree with what you're saying. And, you know, we all have, uh, people who are interfacing with the public and the public health, edu- people that work for us, people that are in our families. Uh, doctors that we go to, whoever, mm. who are in that public education and public health system, and we hear the stories. And there are heroic deeds that are being done by many South Africans to do exactly what you're saying, mm. which is improve those schools, manage those schools, do what they can. And some are doing well and some are not doing well. Mm. But this dynamic of the insiders uh, who are, as you say, enjoying the fruits of our democracy in a very uh, – a good way, even with many frustrations that they have daily, uh, versus those who are completely outside the system, uh, who are really reliant on social welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it produces a very interesting political dynamic, doesn't it? Because in a way, the rural and the poor and the marginalized who are, uh, in many instances, you know, getting the, the worst end of the public education and health system are reliant on the people because of social welfare who are putting that public education and health system in place mm. in the first place. Yeah. And But the subsistence around social welfare, getting the child and old age grants and those issues which are reaching 17 million South Africans today, 
uh, and effectively make the difference between being able to pay for food on the table or not. These are the people who are going to vote, uh, you know, the ruling party back into power in the next election to the mm. extent that ha- that happens. Uh, whereas, you know, the people are well off who've benefited from many of these policies, you know, are, are almost free to determine where they're going to move in a political sense. Why do you think that is? I feel like I, I've also been dumbfounded by this in the past. Why do you think um, that those people who are marginalized, who who don't have the, the services, don't have the, gr- the good education, don't have the good public health care, are the ones voting for, you know, someone like President Zuma? What are we missing there? Look, I think there's, there's a couple of aspects. There's economic vested interest to straight, as I say, how do you put your food on the table? Are you going to vote against the party that brought in social welfare that is paying the only source of cash that you have to buy the food in the shop rights? Mm. So, you know, that's, that's a very harsh reality. There's also a cultural issue. The ANC has spoken, uh, to the liberation, uh, feelings of South Africans for a century. Um, it has, you know, effectively liberated people to be able to vote, enfranchise people, uh, put in place a government. It may not be performing, uh, an optimal, in an optimal sense. But, you know, the, um, the culture of the liberation movement still permeates very, very deep. And African society, after 300 years of colonialism, uh, you know, 20 years of, or two decades and a bit now. of freedom, it's a very short time to lose the memory of 300 years of suppression. Mm. So I think, uh, I think that the ANC has got a lot of goodwill in South Africa that permeates down into the African community who trust and have confidence, uh, in them. Uh, but that confidence and trust is being broken, uh, by acts of corruption. Uh, and when people see, you know, the sort of level of, uh, feeding on the trough and, um, and celebratory, uh, displays of wealth from, uh, ill-gotten gains, corruption at municipal level or in the state-owned enterprises and so on. And people who have had nothing now have cars and, uh, and are throwing parties in the mm. townships and the people with nothing see this. It's right in their face, yeah. you know, so, so this, these issues are really undermining that, you know, deep historical solidarity, uh, with the liberation movement and uh, it is really starting to fray. Uh, so I think that the, what we're going to see in December is really a binary moment, you know, where either the ANC's managed to, manages to unify, uh, behind, uh, an, a kind of anti-patronage, uh, network, uh, whoever comes to power, uh, or that patronage network deepens. Patronage is a very interesting concept. I, yeah, I, I if I can just indulge you yeah, for a minute and say, do. there's a, a famous World Bank economist who described patronage and corruption uh, as a systemic distribution of ill-gotten resources by a political elite to itself and as sufficiently to a political constituency to keep it in power. And it's a very good description. Mm. You know, we just take all the emotion away yeah. of the sy- system of corruption that's happening uh, where – uh, you know, the ANC is becoming much more, more a place for, uh, those that have nothing, that, that unemployed sort of very, 
a marginalized group mm. to be able to get power and economic resources to feed off because there's nothing else for them. Mm. And this is where the business model of business, you asked about big business, uh, has to prove itself that a modern constitutional inclusive economic uh, growth story is preferable in the long term and will, from its inclusivity, feed a much broader group of South Africans than we ma managed to do in the mm. last 23 years. Okay, if you've just joined us, welcome to the show. Uh, we're speaking to partner and uh, MD of the South African Goldman Sachs, Colin Coleman. Have I got, have I got that right, Colin? Yeah, I'm the, part, sure. I'm the partner in charge of Sub-Saharan Africa. So awesome. For the last uh, 10 years, we've been also uh, trying to build a business outside of South Africa and Africa, and it's sort of necessary to to also uh, service our multinational clients and our South African clients properly. Awesome. If you've just joined us, welcome to the show. We're asking, frankly speaking, is there a way to change South Africa's major uh, challenges? South African challenges, of course, we've done a series on this, and, and you should definitely listen to some of the opinions that we've housed so far. Very, very, very interesting. Uh, Colin, we've been speaking about South Africa. Let's Let's get into big business now, and let's talk about... Um, some recent events. Uh, I, I saw you on a, on a show a few months ago. It was actually a month ago before a lot of different, uh, big business, uh, scandals came out. And, uh, the interviewer asked you about credibility in the big business world. And you said, big business has credibility still. Do you still feel that view is, is valid given, uh, given the recent events of KPMG, McKinsey, and SAP? So Business Leadership South Africa, which I'm on the board of, is around 80 members. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been in the post-Nenegate environment, which was December 2015, extremely seized with the issues around South Africa because many businesses woke up with Nenegate to the reality that actually uh, the uh, the power dynamics in South Africa seem to have shifted and deteriorated significantly, mm. particularly asking the question, is there a shadow state in South Africa right. around President Zuma that is effectively uh, in a sort of um, anti-constitutional sense uh, taking decisions, which seems to be the underlying dynamic of the Gupta Gate saga, which is it, where does power lie in South Africa? And is there a shadow state around President Zuma where the Guptas are uh, central determining who are who's in power who is not but I, I would just say that the 80 uh, members of BLSA have been very much on their guard as to uh, what is happening and we've we have been very active around supporting the constitution about uh, ending corruption and we launched recently uh, a contract with South Africa an integrity pledge and that integrity pledge basically pledged that our activities uh, all of businesses' activities in terms of what we did had to be consistent with what we were saying externally to the external world. Mm. So when it emerged that KPMG and McKinsey had been uh, allegedly involved in wide-scale uh, issues which have been brought to the fore uh, around um, conspiring uh, in the KPMG case uh, with SARS around uh, trying to oust Bravin Gordon, and in the McKinsey case, uh, them looking to large contracts with ESCOM. 1.6 billion. Yeah, you know, huge. In, you know, in association, uh, with the trillion firm as an intermediary around ESCOM and Transnet contracts. 
we acted uh, very fast. McKinsey is not a member of PLSA, yes, saw that. Uh, but KPMG was, and we suspended. We acted to suspend KPMG's membership. And then last week, we acted to actually suspend ESCOM and Transnet. Transnet had since ceased to be a member, I think, in August, but ESCOM had still remained a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we felt that this was entirely consistent with our integrity pledge that we needed to act. But it doesn't mean because three uh, companies mm. uh, that are or have been members of BLSA uh, now contaminates all the members of BLSA. Sure. It's not. Sure. It's not the case. And so we are very vigilant about how we're going to uh, expect our members to behave. And all 77 that remain uh, as members, uh, we believe, are very active, uh, very constructive citizens in South Africa. We're extremely active around trying to promote. Uh, you know, all the issues surrounding job creation in South Africa, smaller microenterprise development, all the issues that we're dealing with about youth employment, and I'm happy to talk about those issues. I definitely will get to that and give you a chance to speak about that because I think there's some very interesting things going on. But I want to hear from you from a personal perspective. I mean, Trevor Hill was part of that 81 initiative of CEOs, and you've obviously rubbed shoulders with him a few times in different in different circumstances. How did it feel when all this stuff started coming out in the papers? Uh, you heard it on the radio about potentially KPMG, this big business leader, you know, and someone, a CEO that you, you might have respected in the past, who's been part of the CEO uh, leadership initiative, signing the documents and, and being on that 81 list. How did it feel for you personally when you, when you start seeing this stuff and, and hearing about how a guy on our team suddenly is actually playing for the other team? Well, I must say, you know, KPMG, I know less well personally. So when you ask personally, I know McKinsey extremely mm. well. Uh, and one of the senior partners is a family friend. And um, in regards to, to them, I must say I was shocked um, and disappointed about these um, activities. Uh, you know, McKinsey, like Goldman Sachs, is sort of the Rolls Royce of its industry. Yeah. You know, the consulting industry looks to McKinsey for the best-in-class behavior, and it appears that they've let themselves down. Uh, So I don't want to, you know, speak publicly in a damning way. I I sort of hope that they will find a way to rectify this and manage manage it. And you have to, you know, you in our situation, you can't condemn – and um, and not allow for these global organizations to come to the party and and make sure that they take remedial action. Uh, but uh, we'll watch the space and see what they do. Have you changed your actions in terms of how you are now focusing on these big multinationals um, and working with them specifically, or is it is it a situation of saying, well, all let we, them sort themselves can, out and we'll sort we can, ourselves out? Yeah, all we can do is apply our own standards internally. But I think what and we have been. Uh, you know, I can tell you for the last several years, we've been extremely vigilant as Goldman Sachs as to what we do, with whom we do it, in the context of a heightened state capture reality in South Africa. So as a partner of Goldman Sachs here, I've been extremely vigilant with my team in a way uh, probably very harsh mm. uh, with them. But it's to protect the firm and to protect our reputation, which is more important than anything uh, but we have our controls, and we apply them very, very strictly, and we're very eyes open about what's going on here. 
must be difficult though, because I mean, if you think of the SOCs and SOEs, uh, depending on who you, how you call it, but they've got big money to spend. They are big money spenders. And Goldman Sachs has to make money at the end of the day. Their shareholders demand it, right? Must be difficult to, yeah, to no throw out those. Money. There's no amount of money that we can make. Whether it's $200 million on a contract with ESCOM or whoever, uh, that, is, that warrants um, denting our reputation. We just won't do it. So we're very, very focused on doing the right thing, living our principles, living our values, and making sure that uh, before we act on any transaction, we – have our processes, whether it's business selection, clearance, compliance, all sorts of issues that we go through. And if they don't pass those tests, it's not going to happen. Speaking to uh, Sub-Saharan uh, Africa MD, uh, Mr. Colin Coleman, and he's also a partner at Goldman Sachs about what big business should be doing. Got a few questions from, from our audience as well. We'll get to them as before before we end the show. I love throwing in a Butterbele Dlamini quote every now and again. And um, Colin, I've got to ask you, as a captain of industry, uh, if we had to expose our small Indiana skeletons uh, to the world in the closets that surround Santon in this, this office that we are in at the moment, do you think that you'd be surprised at what's been going on? Well, the Guptagate emails are you know, a revelation in and of themselves. It's not that we didn't know in general terms what was happening, but when you read the specifics, you know, day in and day out, it's, it really takes your breath away. It takes my breath away. Um, and I don't think we've heard everything. Um, Does that scare you? Yeah, I do, well, it, it, it feels that to me. That your name might pop up or Goldman Sachs's name might no, pop I'm up. No, I'm not concerned about my name or Goldman Sachs's name. I know exactly what we've done. There's mm. no, there's no skeletons in, in that sense. Uh, what scares me is the degree to which this is systemic. You know, when Fanzel Slabert, I remember talking to him many years mm. ago and, uh, he was sort of warning in a conversation I had with him about, Corruption and how corruption in Africa becomes part of the furniture was what he he mentioned. This mm. part of the furniture, you know, where it's just so systemic that it's that it's difficult to like a ca- like a cancer, uh, you know, give chemotherapy treatment and get rid of it mm. um, because it's everywhere. And so that's what I'm concerned about, you know. And when you call it, when you talk about Bataglini, Clamini, you know. The thing that sort of most I thought you were going to ask about is the real tragedy is South Africa is so full of talent. You know, if you look at the business community, you look at government, you look at the ANC people uh, that came through uh, the resistance movement, you look at civil society, even the trade union leaders that we deal with, these are outstanding people. Mm. And our, our ability as a society to produce outstanding people is not in doubt. But we've kept these outstanding people on the margins, mm. consciously, it seems, in the last 10 years, in order to weaken the society and our leadership. So, you know, hopefully if we turn the corner in a positive way in the next year or two, you know, we'll see the good South Africans take their position as leaders in state-owned enterprises, in the cabinet, in business, in trade union movement. Uh, and that's the sort of precondition we require to get real movement forward. I'm interested in the numbers now. You, uh, you've been uh, you've been quoted as as 
trying to do a lot of work with uh, the finance and the treasury departments at the moment with uh, Malusi Gigaba. How, how is that? Like, what's, what's the relationships there in terms of wh- what are you doing uh, as, as an individual and as part of these CEO leadership initiatives and BLSA? How are you guys working with government at the moment to try and rectify mm. Well, the CEO initiative is really the, the heart of our engagement with the finance minister and the president. It's run by Jabba Mabuza, who is also the chairman of BLSA and BUSA. Uh, what we effectively doing is engaging on what we see as the critical issues of the day. In particular, the systemic state-owned enterprises, not SAA, by the way, because I was about to S- talk about 5.5 billion in eight weeks is quite a bit of money to give to SAA. Yeah, but SAA is small. In, in reality, relative to an ESCOM or a Transnet, the, you know, ESCOM is, ESCOM, uh, is a, is an operating and systemic risk to South Africa. It's a, you know, the, the scale of the enterprise, you know, 350 billion rand of net debt of thir- 37 billion Rand of EBITDA earnings before Mm-mm-mm. interest, tax depreciation, amortization. I'm so glad you said that because you lost me in about 50%. Of no, so I, I'm trying to help your, I'm trying to help thank your you. audience, no, but that you. is, I appreciate that. you know, that is by any calculation, nine and a half times. It's a very highly levered state owned enterprise. That amount of debt can really infect the banking system if it goes bad. So we're very focused on fixing the things that are critical to South Africa or at least advising. And and critical to you, right? Because as you just mentioned, if ESCOM goes bad, then the banks are in trouble, right? Because it's it's so heavily leveraged. You know, Goldman Sachs is not a a local bank with, uh, you know, our our risk to relative to South Africa is relatively small, but it's Mm. the large banks in South Africa and the life offices, all the institutional investors, that have the most to lose, you know. So, mm. so that's that's critical for them. But it's really about South Africa and its fiscal stability as a nation. Uh, but SAA is small, you know. It's 16 billion rand of debt. Uh, my comparison with 350 billion, you know, it's not going to shake the system. Mm. We might lose a national airline and a logo on the side of a plane, uh, but that's not going to shake the system. Um, so, but we 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 are trying to. F- to advise, help, assist, uh, give our views in a constructive spirit to the finance ministry, uh, to the president. You know, we have called two, there are two critical issues that we wait for the president to, to deal with still since our meeting at the end of April. The one is, uh, in introducing, uh, an investigation into state capture as described and advised by the public prosecutor which we've urged him to proceed with. It's getting late in the day, isn't it? And <laughs> the second is uh, the, you know, the appointment of an independent, credible, experienced chairman of ESCOM uh, and a new board of ESCOM and a credible management that is effectively cleansed of uh, the corruption allegations of the past. And uh, those are the two critical issues on which we, we remain engaged. This, then there's things on which we are partnering with government, which include the Youth uh, Employment Service Project called YES, mm. to attempt to create a million uh, internship opportunities over a three-year period starting in January next year. And the Small Microenterprise Fund that Adrian Gore and Brian Joffe have uh, launched with one and a half billion rand of equity that's been raised throughout the business community, 
for the purposes of facilitating smaller micro-enterprises, both a funding and a mentoring mechanism, which we think is constructive. So there are things on which we try to be part of the solution, things on which really the government has to do, but we can advise and assist. So let me... Um I do. I do want to get to that stuff. I just want to park it for a second. Let's just talk quickly about um, business and when business oversteps its mark. I want to hear your opinion because I've I've often been interested doing a bit of research on on uh, the Coleman's. You see, I come prepared. It must mm. be an interesting dinner table discussion when we have a, a trade unionist, a big businessman, and an anti-apartheid activist sitting at one table. And that really is the history of your family. You're, you've been very involved in the anti-apartheid struggle back mm. in the day. And now we sit at, you know, the leaders in all different aspects. I mean, what a family. But I'm interested to hear your your uh, thoughts on trade unions and the ANC and their connection and how close they are, and specifically, obviously, the Tripartite Alliance and Kosatu. Do you think that that's a good thing? to have such close ties to government as the major unionist in the country with government being the biggest employer of most of those union people. Do you think that's a good thing? You know, the, the interesting thing, if you just take a, a helicopter step back and look at what happened, you know, in the post-94 period, the ANC, Kasati and the South African Communist Party were really tied together in an operating way very closely. And then, you know, over time, under Mbeki, that became frayed and much more challenged, and there was the problems around gear, RDP, and issues like that. And over time, you know, has 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 become uh, more co- a point of conflict within the alliance. Mm. Uh, and in the in the current period, we now have a situation actually where the business community, the South African Communist Party, civil society, and the trade union movement are really speaking with one voice about state capture and con- pro- supporting the constitutional state. Mm. And we may have differences over the model of economic growth, but we had a very interesting meeting with the uh, Central Executive Committee of Kosatu, which we made public for a weekend. It was sort of going back mm, to mm. the the pre-Codessa days of getting, you know, uh, Guys from opposite sides of the table. People from opposite sides <laughs> together and spending time together and getting to know that we weren't so uh, unlikable to each other. And uh, we had a fantastic weekend with the Kosatu Central Executive was in June uh, that I was very in- involved in in uh, facilitating. Uh, and we had a very powerful business delegation with the Kosatu people. And we came up with some very interesting ideas about things that we were – you know, uh, on the opposite sides of, and things that we felt we could explore. For example, manufacturing. Uh, there was a detailed presentation from the manufacturing circle, uh, which is the organized formation of manufacturers, on how do we create a million manufacturing jobs in South Africa, which is obviously something very, very interesting to the trade union movement. And, you know, export processing zones with tax benefits, um, lightening the load on smaller micro-enterprises, labor regulation, uh, mm. all of these very tough issues are part of the package of how we drive a million new jobs. But with a prize so big, I think the trade union movement were actually prepared to be very constructive about thinking in that direction. So on this score, I'm actually very, very hopeful. I think the one thing that these events in South Africa of late have done is reconfigured the positioning between business and the trade union movement for the positive. We 
we may be oppositional in a sense, in a certain sense, but on the other side, we, on the other, uh, on the other side, we are, we are partners. We're both partners in businesses where trading movements are representing employees at, you know, they, we, we the enemies they love to have. Mm. You know, they, we are the people who hold the businesses together, put capital in the businesses, manage the businesses, but we also need their input. So there's a, there's an interesting debate, which I am personally quite interested in having. I know some of my business colleagues are less interested in it, which is should workers be represented on boards of companies, like mm. in the German model, which mm. is what happens there. So we need to be open-minded about this. I, I'm just quite constructive at the moment. If we make the correct political choices as a country, either in the ruling party or uh, in the national election process, uh I think we can see a new era in South Africa of political leadership that is strong, working with business and trade unions that have a much more constructive relationship. It's one of the um, suggestions that the leadership initiative is giving at the moment to privatize ESCOM. Um, listen, to be, I think, very clear, if somebody had to say to any bank today, can you try and list ESCOM? It's not listable today. Mm. You can't list ESCOM. It's got too much debt. Is um, you know the board and governance issues are wrong. Uh, the operating questions over the model. There's tariff and regulatory uncertainty. So it's just cut through it. The ideological question doesn't hold in the sense there's nothing that can be done right now. We have to fix the model under which ESCOM operates. Uh, you know the possibility of introducing. Uh, private capital in to ESCOM is a uh, constructive discussion point. Mm. But, you know, are we going to sell ESCOM to someone? No, we're not buy it today. Mm. Are you going to list it? Well, it's not in a state to be listed. Is there a, a different model for operating ESCOM? Well, I wouldn't say distribution is a constructive area for dialogue. But there are ways in which you can do smart things to re-equitize ESCOM around transmission and generation assets. So help me understand that because I don't come from the, the high finance world, you know, but... Um, well, I'm being uh, specifically vague. Yeah, uh, because, <laughs> because uh, I'm not, not in a position to, to say more. But so, I, think, I think at this point... Uh, so I don't want you to say more about the specific deal, but, but help me understand it, because doesn't that then put um, big business at a little bit of a at odds because they have something to gain then by helping Malusi Gigaba sort out ESCOM, right? They have, and I'm not talking about the, the debt issues in banks. I'm talking about if, for example, Colin Coleman does a really good deal with Malusi Gigaba and then Malusi says, right, Colin Coleman and Goldman Sachs can actually support in fixing ESCOM by um, invigorating some, some funds into it. Don't you then make huge amounts of money? No, but it's, this is, this is really academic at this point in time. Honestly, the, uh, the finance ministry has to determine and the government has to determine, A, do they have a problem at ESCOM? Mm. B, what is the scale of the problem? So they're still wondering if they have a problem. C, uh, do, <laughs> do they have to fix it? How do they fix it? So, so they have a long road to travel. So I don't think you should be worrying about what I'm going to be doing in December. I'll be on holiday 
Can uh, I worry at watched, some stage? Watching, yeah. <laughs> watching what, desperately what's happening at the ANC conference and hoping that it goes well. Okay, Colin, before we get on to some of the solutions, because we're running out of time here, um, it goes so quickly. We've been speaking to um, the Sub-Saharan Africa uh, MD for Goldman Sachs, uh, Colin Coleman. Before we get to the solutions, let's talk a little bit and let's openly be honest about this. Where has big business in your mind failed? Look, I think I think um, business in the uh, pre-democracy period partly came to the party uh, in something called the consultative business movement and other things where we facilitated talks I was very much part of. But in the pre-1990 period, let's say pre-mid-80s, you know, business was not very loud. The voice, the voice in the 85, 87 period when I was a uh, on the student campus, uh, you know, getting shot at by, by the police in those days, and the repression was at its height. You know, business was not did not have a loud voice mm. then at the darkest days. Well, they were colluding with the apartheid government, right? And, the, and there was benefits that people were 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 benefiting. So I'd say that was a period of failure that was partly uh, compensated by the engagement of some of the business people in the post-89 period leading up to uh, the 94, uh, 90. But that's all. That's the mm. subject of a book I'll write one yeah, day. I was going to say, that's a history lesson. Uh, Let's get into and, now, contemporary. And I think in the, uh, in the post-94 period, I think uh, business was a little bit uh, complacent, I would say, for a period, particularly in the Mbeki and the beginning of the Zuma years, there was complacency because things were going reasonably well. There was sort of 3.2% growth rate through the period, even 5%. Mm. Uh, there was probably not enough support for President Becky from the business community. And he had his quirks. You know, the Zimbabwe and the AIDS issues, uh, you know, were real blind spots that he had. And I regard him extremely highly, but I would tell him, that I think he failed in those regards, mm. but it created uh, an environment, and you know his aloofness uh, in many senses was was difficult for business to deal with. But at the same time, um, he was engaged with uh, the business community through his international advisory council and various things, and uh, there was a period in which there was uh, some engagement, but business wasn't using that period enough to deal with this inclusive growth issue. Mm. You know, are we satisfied that uh, there's enough jobs being created, enough investment that we look thinking out of the box in fixing uh, the social issues in South Africa? So the things like the Youth Employment Service Project we're doing now, if you had done them then, we would be far more advanced. Uh, but I think in the Nenegate, as I say, Nenegate was that moment where business woke up and said, look, there's things amiss here. We have to get stuck in uh, and try and resolve these problems. Where have you failed as a business leader? Where do you think that you failed in the South African context? And I say that very humbly because I know you've done a lot for South Africa. So it's, it, you know, if you, if you feel like you haven't failed, that's okay. But where have you personally failed? Looking back at the history that you've come through and the incredible stuff that you've done, is there a moment where you're like, ah, yeah, I probably could have done more there or geez, that was my blind spot. You know, right, we speak about right. Mbeki's blind spots. Right. Where, where do you think your blind spots were? Well, actually, and I'm speaking in support of the Mbeki period, I, I, I think I could have done more at that time. 
to encourage business people to support him. Vo- you know, as be a voice out there saying what he's doing is very constructive because he was a, he was really promoting economic growth. Uh, and taking a lot of hits with the trade union movement and the alliance, and business was very quiet. Uh, so I think I personally could have been much more out there. Obviously, around the global financial crisis, uh, I felt uh, somewhat um, exposed uh, in the sense that in the um, in the 2008 period, 2009, you know, I felt the the million jobs that were lost. I'm talking about in South Africa as mm. opposed to the global. Yeah. Uh, situation, um, you know, was a huge sacrifice that South Africa was forced to make at that time. And I thought about various ways in which I could make representations. I don't know if you remember Jack and Marie, uh, you know, effectively said he would give up uh, some of his mm. salary uh, and compensation um, towards um, towards societal benefits. Uh, so while I do do participate in philanthropy through something called Goldman Sachs Gives, which is a something reserved for the partners, uh, it's a sort of an account where we where we have a fund that's part of our compensation that goes to that, and we we make investment in philanthropy. I'm not saying it was a failing, but I I did uh, wonder if there was a more constructive way for me to behave at that mm. particular point in time, uh, and we just sort of shoulder the wheel now, you know. Um, you know, I'm on the CEO initiative. I'm on the BLSA uh, board. I'm on the NBI board. Uh, I'm running this youth employment service initiative with Stephen Kossoff uh, as my partner, sort of spearheading that in the business community and trying to manage Goldman Sachs' business in sub-Saharan Africa. So we're very busy doing what we can uh, and very engaged with uh, issues uh, in the broader society. So a, a comment from our Facebook uh, viewers from Bradley Shaw, he says, he wants to know, is Colin Coleman personally disinvesting from South Africa? Have you stopped all your investments in terms of South Africa? I'm sure you have a number of different uh, portfolio activities going on. Are you concerned? Do you Have you stopped putting investment into South Africa personally? Or are you still feeling like it's business as usual? I know it's quite a personal question. So yeah. Bradley asked it. I've got to ask yeah. it on his behalf. But well, I thanks, mean, it's... Thanks, Brad. And, uh, you know, people do ask me from, mm. from time to time how... Because they... They want to know what am I doing and how do I feel about what's going on. And the, the subtext of this question is what, what, what are the options into the future? Because people are unsettled by what is going on. And there's, there are many people asking themselves, you know, do I have a place in South Africa? Is South mm. Africa a place where I should be investing? And that's an unfortunate reality brought about by the situation. And personally, I, I have, you know, all my physical assets in South Africa. I don't ho- own homes ever, anywhere else. Uh, I have, I have three homes in South Africa and, uh, one of them I've, I've renovated and, and bought in the last two years. And it's been a bit of a pet project going back to my architecture days to renovate. Um, but, um, I understand the question. And I think, I think the, the question probably comes from a good place. The, que- the place is what's responsible for people to be doing. I think there's, a lot of people waiting for December to see how this works out because mm. the ruling party's decision uh, really is instrumental in where South Africa goes. You know, if we choose a patronage path, the next 10 years is going to be a, a long-term economic decline. And if we choose a path in favor of constitutionalism and democracy, uh, you know, there is a, 
very good chance that we're going to get back to three, three to five percent growth rates in the next two to five years. Uh, on the other hand, if the patronage uh, choice is made, it's going to produce very interesting national politics between the ANC and others. I would suggest that it's likely there will be a breakaway from the ANC uh, if that choice is made uh, in the post-December period, and then you'll have a competitive political situation that may mean that coalition politics is what emerges uh, sooner than we think. I don't think uh, that Nkosa Zanazuma, if she was to be victorious, will be able to uh, to hold off having a national election until 2019. I think it will happen earlier. I think they'll dissolve parliament and bring an election earlier. And uh, then we'll have a very robust national election and we'll see where it comes out. This sounds like insider trading. Huh? We've heard some very, very interesting conversations here. Um, <laughs> Colin, 1.1 trillion big businesses holding back, supposedly. Um, that's a big number. What's now, the we, story there? We, we just did, which I hope, I hope you'll go to the Business Leadership South Africa site, which is on Facebook and various, mm. various other things. We just did a study, actually, which disproves the notion that South Africa's business is hoarding cash. I would say that there's an opportunity to invest more uh, cash balances of businesses in South African projects. But be realistic. You know, when your Minister of Mines is attacking uh, the South African mining community and they're at odds with the Chamber of Mines, are the mines going to be making large-scale cash investments in this time? No. They're going to wait until there's more policy clarity and clarity as to where empowerment and other issues are going. Uh, but in general terms, the proportion of uh, cash balances to GDP is not out of line with the international community. Uh, South Africa's businesses are highly resilient, very well managed, uh, and they are looking for the optimal capital returns. Uh, and those capital returns historically have come in South Africa. And have done extremely well in South Africa, even on a dollar-translated mm. uh, basis. Mm -hmm. So with the right environment, I think we'll see that capital invested. Uh, but um, to the extent we, we, we are on a road which is anti-business, you won't see the capital invested. To the extent that there's an environment supporting business, you will. Is that a, is that a, is that a, um, a lever? That, that big business ultimatum. has. It's not an, I don't mean it as an ultimatum, but I think because it could come off as a, as a bit of a threat, right? I mean, if you think about Malusi Gigaba wants to, uh, and the finance department wants to um, collect 1.3 trillion rand in taxes uh, this year, uh, that's down actually from what they got last year. But that's, you know, if we talk to the numbers that the media is spewing out there, that's equivalent to what big business holds right now and saying, well, we're going to just hold that as cash reserves. Is that a little bit of a threat to say, hey, man, get your house in order, otherwise we're, we're not going to be around? It's just, I think the economic – it's not that we're not going to be around. It's just, you know, are we going to be investing, you know, are, are, are mining companies, uh, logistics companies, pharmaceuticals, telecommunications companies, are they going to go the extra mile to invest capital when they're uncertain about the returns or the value of the RAND or mm. uh, their returns on equity? No, they're they, they naturally at the board levels – Will will be concerned and and be prudent in the interests of shareholders. They, they will be, but to the extent that there's a um, a, a virtuous cycle 
uh, of good policy, good economic outlook, um, some certainty. I'm not saying just a free market environment. What we want is we want an effective state. Mm. We don't really mind an interventionist state. You know, this is the ideological blind spot. You know, people say business needs a free market. We we need a functioning market. We need an effective state. We don't want money wasted or stolen. Uh, we don't want an anti-business environment in the sense of policies that are designed to uh, punish business. Uh, so if you have a virtuous cycle, you know, you'll get more investment, you'll get more capital flowing, you'll get more opportunities, more jobs, uh, more infrastructure, uh, more benefits to a lot wider group of people. That's what we want. Just uh, let's talk a little bit about what business is doing. Um, the Yes campaign has been a topic of interest for me personally. Um, I've been watching it. I saw you speak at one of the conferences about the Yes campaign and how it was put on pause. 330,000 jobs a year. That's what you're looking to create um, through this campaign. Uh, paused after the Praveen Gordon incident. Now seems to be back on target. Talk me through how are you going to do this? With I mean, how are 330,000 jobs going to be created a year overnight? Um, and, you know, Give, give okay. me a sense of, of so what you're planning there. So what we're creating is work opportunities, not permanent jobs. Okay. The work opportunities are one-year internships in companies, paid. So people should expect that you know they'll they'll get uh, the minimum wage uh, or more payment uh, for that opportunity. There'll be onboarding uh, of people through a training process, uh, and there will be exit um, processes, so that. Uh, the work interns will get an accreditation that they'll be able to use on a CV going forward that they've participated. And the literature basically suggests that if you've had um, the opportunity to work in a business, your your probability of getting permanent employment, even if not with that particular business, is much higher than if you don't do that. Mm. So it is a, uh, a pathway. Uh, we will have a registration process where uh, businesses will register as um, yes companies and they will set their targets uh, that they will be required and we're going to reveal more uh, about it uh, when we publicly uh, launch this, which will be soon. Um, and there will be an incentive package for businesses to participate, again, the details of which will become known. Uh, but we've been negotiating this, and uh, we expect that the cabinet will discuss this uh, further in the course of October, and that we'll be able, before the end of the year, to make uh, announcements, detailed announcements on how it will work uh, for your benefit. And in terms of partnering on the ground, because, uh, as you said, you're a busy man dealing with just Goldman Sachs and business leadership and all these so other this things. This is the, really all of the CEO initiative companies and business leadership South Africa, all the big companies, but not only them, the medium-sized enterprises and smaller micro-enterprises will be able to join YES uh, and uh, participate as YES companies and get the benefits of being a YES company, which will be uh, I think very strong incentives to doing that. We can't reach our 330,000 a year, which will be ramped up over time, uh, without small and medium enterprises participating because, uh, out of the 11.5 million, uh, non-domestic, uh, employees in South Africa, um, 
only about 2 million are in the large companies, the, the sort of top 100 companies. The balance is in the medium and smaller companies. So it's very important that those companies participate to reach our targets. Okay, last question, and we're going to have to wrap it up there. And if you can make it brief, that'd be great. Yep. The two decades of freedom, a 20-year report. Chief, as you must hate when interviewers bring that up all the time. In 2013, you no, released I love this that report. report. I love that report. Yeah. It's, it's a report that reads like the 2010 World Cup of reports, really. I mean, it shows like South Africa that is idealized. Uh, looking back at it now and going – what we wrote in there, what we, what the figures that we pulled, any regrets that you have, and no, any things no, that you think, think are different now? There's no, there's no regrets at all. Those facts were the facts. It was a very factual based report, and what we showed was uh, the strengths uh, of the post-democracy period: the black middle class, social welfare, the support, support for the poor. Uh, the challenges we showed very clearly were the unemployment and structural. Uh, issues surrounding uh, inequality in South Africa. And we put out the challenges, which was all of the structural forms mm. that we've been talking about. So nothing has changed. The, the thing that's changed with over the last four years since that report was released is obviously the economy has, has gone into a negative um, you know, trajectory. We're underperforming the growth rates. So the, we were more like one and a half, two percent growth rates than the a pre-report publishing 3.2% growth rate. So mm. the structural reforms have not been uh, – the recommendations have not been adopted effectively, which is uh, extremely disappointing. Mm. You know, I, rep- I presented that report to President Zuma and the top six of the ANC in October 2013, uh, and I would uh, think that if we had followed those uh, structural reforms that we'd recommended in the report – We'd be in a much better position. Junk status in uh, pre-democracy, uh, uh, back to junk status again. It's going to be an uphill battle from now, Colin. Thank you very much for your time. We really My appreciate pleasure. it, man. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to having one or two more conversations with you, hopefully in the future, uh, when we see what the Yes campaign gets up to and also when we see what biz- big business does in terms of past December. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. If you have any questions, please do uh, hit us up on Twitter. And uh, if you missed any of this podcast, cliffcentral.com forward slash frankly speaking. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much. Ciao, ciao. Cliffcentral.com.